My name is DJ, one of the pastors here at PFC. It's great to have you with us this morning. We are continuing our series through the book of Romans. And for the last several weeks and uh, continuing today, we've been in chapter 3 of Romans, which is a really dense, beautiful, magnificent chapter. Um, And we've been looking at some key words in this passage. And so two weeks ago, Pastor Dave uh, did a word study on justice righteousness. So in, when, in our English translations, when we read the word justice or we read the word tra- uh, righteousness, it's the same word, dikaiosune in Greek. And so we did a word study on that. Uh, then last week, we did a word study on the word good or the word goodness um, from tracing from Genesis 1 in the beginning. God created it, and each day God says it's good. And he puts the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. And then Paul, quoting from the Psalms in Romans 3, says there's no one good, not one. This week, we're, uh, this morning, we're going to do uh, a little word study on um, what is maybe my favorite word in the Bible. And if you've been a part of PFC for any length of time, you've probably heard me talk about this at some point, And that's the word faith. Um, and so we're going to be looking at faith. So here's a little roadmap for where we're headed for the next few minutes. We're going to read Romans 3 from beginning to end. I'm going to have you stand, and I'm going to read the passage. And at a couple key places, I'm going to ask you to read out loud with me. Then I'm going to talk about the idea of a standard and Jesus being the standard of our faith. Then I'm going to talk about faith um, in three dimensions. I'm going to give a three-dimensional definition of faith. And then we're going to break up into groups of three, four people around us, and we're going to have a couple minutes of discussion. Now, some of you may be introverts, and you're like, oh, no, don't make me do that, please. Um, This is good for you. This is really, really healthy. And... (laughs) And it's okay uh, to sit quietly and not have to give too much. You can sit quietly and just be part of the group. Um, If you're more extroverted, um, this isn't a chance for you to soapbox uh, for five minutes. Like, it can, like, space is okay. It can be quiet. So um, that's what we're going to do. All right, sound good? Everybody with me? All right, stand up. Let's read the Word of God together. Uh, Romans chapter 3. It's uh, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome, starting in verse 1, and I'll, I'll give you a cue when I want you to read out loud with me. Apostle Paul says, and I'm reading from the NIV, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim we say, let us do evil, that good may result. Their condemnation is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And that was all of the second half of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2. 
Verse 10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've all together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious or we become aware of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. Read with me, verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Continue with me. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Let me read that verse again, 25. And I'll take it from here. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It's gone. It's excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Father, I pray that you would open our minds and hearts to a deeper and richer understanding of walking by faith and receiving the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ through faith. And I pray that we would do it together as a covenant community. Thank you for every person here. May your spirit speak to us through your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You can have a seat. All right, faith in Jesus, the standard. Let's, let's talk about standards for a second. I've been thinking about this, this word. Everybody say standard. Standard. I've been thinking about this word uh, for a while now. It's, it just keeps popping up in my imagination, popping up when I'm reading the scriptures and thinking about different things. And I hope, I hope that as I unpack this uh, briefly this morning, it'll explain why I think this is key to understanding this text in Romans chapter 3, where we're looking at the law and we're looking at faith in Christ and what God has done through the law to prepare the people for faith. But the truer thing is faith in Christ. So what's a standard? This is uh, dictionary.com. A standard is a conspicuous object, like a banner at the top of a flagpole. De definition number two, and this is the key one for us this morning. 
A standard is something established by authority, custom, or general consent as a model or example. Makes sense, right? A standard is something established by authority, by custom or general consent as a model or an example. Or thirdly, something set up and established by authority as a rule for the measure of quantity, weight, extent, value, or quality. This is, this is elementary, right? You get it? This is what the definition of a standard is. Okay, did you know that the US used to be on the gold standard? The US monetary system was on the gold standard. Anybody in here uh, have enough snow on the roof to remember, remember the gold standard uh, being the case in the US? Yeah, Mr. Ray? Mr. Ray remembers? It used to be that, and kids, check this out. If you're, if you're under 20, check this out. This might be new information for you. It used to be that every single dollar bill was worth an actual amount of gold that the US Treasury held. And so your US dollar was backed by the gold standard. And then it transitioned to a modified gold and silver, and that lasted through the 1970s and finally ended in the Nixon era. Now here's the thing about being on the gold standard that's really cool. Inflation rates for a 30 to 40 year period while the US was on the gold standard um, inflation rates were 0.01% per year, inflation. What was inflation over the last year? Anybody know? What, I hear, too much, <laughs> too much. You go to the gas station, too much. Go to the grocery store, too much. We've all felt uh, the, the, the weight of that. So when the US moved off of the gold slash gold silver uh, backing system, um, and now each dollar, what backs the US dollar? What, what backs it? Absolutely nothing. Nothing, but this piece of paper, or like cryptocurrency, or like these numbers that fly around when we swipe our credit cards at the store. Like what do they actually mean? They don't mean anything. Seriously, they don't mean anything. It's just all of us have inherited this system where we've agreed Okay, I guess this dollar is now worth one fifteenth of a cup of coffee at Starbucks now. <laughs> I guess this dollar bill is worth one five hundredth of a ticket to see the Eagles play the, the Chiefs on Monday night. Right? It's just us putting faith in this thing that I can show up at the store and I can hand it and it's going to mean something. Mean something. Now, for those who pine for the older days and when things used to be better and we were on the gold standard, it really wasn't better because if you think about it, what happens when a bunch of people suddenly find gold in California? It messes up the whole system because the dollar was based on a set amount of gold that was already in existence. And so the entire world's economy is thrown into chaos when you find more of this thing. And what gives gold its value? Can gold feed you? Can it clothe you? Can it care for you? Can it comfort you? Can it shelter you? It's just that we, as humans, for many thousands of years, have looked at this and said, ooh, that's shiny. <laughs> it's shiny and it's heavy. Like, that's worth something. I'll do this for you if you give me that. It doesn't mean anything. It's actually valueless. We put our faith in it. Our faith in Christ is in a standard that actually 
matters. Our faith in Jesus is in a standard that actually holds real value. So this is the first standard, and it's right at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, this is the original standard for humans. So God created mankind. That's everyone. You and me, male, female, everyone who's ever lived. God created mankind in whose image? In his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So, for Adam and Eve, like this dollar bill. I should have brought a dollar bill today, but who carries cash anymore, am I right? Uh, this, this dollar bill, this dollar bill that is a promissory note that it, it means something. Adam and Eve are promissory notes to creation of God's image. You are a promissory note bearing the stamp of God's image to creation. Why do you think rulers have always wanted to put their big old faces on coins? What are they doing? They're saying, you better get behind me. You better get under me. That's why it's such a big deal that Caesar's face is on coins. Adam and Eve are the promissory note to creation created in God's image. So the original standard is God himself. And if you know the Genesis story, they know God face to face. They walk with God. They hear God's voice. They listen to him. In the cool of the garden, they converse with him. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, who's the one who's fruitful? God? His righteousness and shall fill the earth as waters fill the sea? So he says to these humans, these promissory notes, these image bearers, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Theologians call this the dominion mandate, not the domination mandate. Humans, for all time, have tried to dominate one another and tried to dominate creation. That is not the invitation here. The invitation here is to represent God, represent God to creation, so much so that even the fish experience the glory of God through our presence. Isn't that crazy? The birds of the sky, is that the case? <laughs> is that the case? So often, so often not. This is the original standard. Adam and Eve walk face to face with God. They know him face to face as an intimate friend. What happens? They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're not supposed to. They, they, sin enters the world. We know the story. They're removed from the garden. No longer do they have unmediated relationship with God. No longer do humans walk face to face with God in the same way. So if you know the biblical story, God begins to send the prophets, the first prophet in the scriptures uh, being Abraham. Um, but then he gives his law through Moses, through the, through the prophet Moses. And what Moses gives to the people is a mediated standard. It's a mediated standard. No longer can people come face to face with God. And so Moses, in giving the commandments, in giving the law, the, the Mosaic uh, law, what, what's, what God is doing is he's giving uh, this set of rules and this set of things to follow, this story to follow, and it's a mediated standard because no longer is there access to God face to face. I've been reading through Leviticus and Numbers lately. Riveting reading. Uh, 
great way to wake up in the morning. I, but I've been reading through Leviticus lately, and I came across this, and I was thinking about this word standard, and it, Moses is giving the law, and he says, anyone who injures another person must be dealt with according to the injury inflicted. A fracture for a fracture, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Whatever anyone does to an injured, uh, injure another person must be paid back in kind. Whoever kills an animal must pay for it in full, but whoever kills another person must be put to death. And notice the word here. This same, what? Standard. This same standard applies to both native-born Israelites and to foreigners living among you. I'm the Lord your God. Now, if Adam and Eve and their uh, the generations that came after them were still living in the garden, still walking with God face to face, would they need this standard? No. They've got the actual thing. They wouldn't need this standard. We need the standard because we no longer will walk face to face with God. Here's the amazing thing, and I wish I, I, wish I had more time to unpack the, the brilliance of this and the beauty of this. In, in, Galatians, uh, in Galatians, the Apostle Paul uses the metaphor of a babysitter uh, for the law. The law is like a babysitter. Until the fullness of time when God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might be adopted as children of God. So the law is like this babysitter that's, that's this mediated standard until Jesus came. Because who is Jesus? He is the unmediated standard. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So when we are in relationship with Jesus, we're back in the garden. <laughs> we're back walking face to face with God. So do we need the mediated standard when we have the real thing? No. But does that mean that the mediated standard, the law, is pointless? No, Paul says. This thing shows us because anyone who has tried to follow this has failed. There's no one good. No, not one. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. The law, when we try to, do, when we try to follow the law, when we try to live this way, we inevitably come up to the point that we can't live into the standard without the standard living into us. So as followers of Christ, our standard is actually reoriented back to God. God is your standard. He's my standard. He is medi he's not mediated through the law. He's revealed through Jesus, the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the standard. Jesus is the standard. Do you remember in the 90s when we all walked around with bracelets that said, what would Jesus do? That's a way of trying to say this. But I have one better for you. Because it's not as if Jesus just lived then and he doesn't live now. So a better question than what would Jesus do is what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing? And through the Holy Spirit and through the word and through the community of God, we can actually enter into that story and walk it out so that the standard becomes the face of God once again. Because whoever has looked upon Jesus and walked with him has seen God and knows God. As followers of Christ, our faith is backed by an even better standard than gold. The standard of our faith is Jesus. And Paul has a lot to say about the nature of faith in Romans. So I'm going to touch on one portion of that briefly this morning. And this is my favorite biblical word. It's the word for faith. And I want you all to say it with me. Pistis. All right. Say it again. Pistis. It's a fun word, isn't it? Um, our, our cultural understanding of pistis, or our cultural understanding of faith, is bankrupt. The, the American understanding of what faith is is completely bankrupt and one-dimensional. So the English word faith, the English word faith 
uh, is capturing this word pistis. And this is so key to understand. Pistis predates Christianity. All right? Let me say this again. This word predates Christianity. So when the Apostle Paul uses this word, when Jesus, he didn't use this word because he was speaking Aramaic, but when the, the disciples used this word, they were using a word that already existed. This is so important because in America, when, if I would go onto High Street in Pottstown, the main drag, and I would grab the first person on High Street and I would say, what does it mean to have faith? First of all, the person would be like, stop yelling at me. You could just ask me, what does it mean to have faith? Second of all, the person would say, well, it means believing something that there's no scientific proof for. Right? That's what faith means. Believing something that there's no proof for. Um, Mark Twain wrote, faith is believing what you know ain't so. That's basically how America would define faith. And in my honest pastoral opinion, I think that's how most Christians think of faith. They think of believing in the impossible. Believing in something that there's no proof for. Believing in something that there's no science for. Uh, I love the movie Nacho Libre. And I was watching it with my son recently. And, and uh, the one character just keeps saying, I can't believe in God because I believe in science. As if these two things can't coexist. So when the Apostle Paul talks about faith, he's not talking about belief in something that there's no proof for or there's no scientific proof for. That wasn't a category. That wasn't a thing. There are three definitions to faith, three dimensions to it. One is belief. Yes, it has a component of belief. So the Greek word for belief is pisteo. Do you recognize the relation? Pistis is faith. Belief is pisteo, so same root. Faith does have this idea of belief, but it's not just a belief in something that there's no proof for. Watch this. When Caesar would go into a new city, conquer that city, set up a statue of himself in that city, he would then demand pistis from the residents of that city. Now, when Caesar conquers a new people, is he saying to those people, you better believe in me even though there's no proof in me? Of course not. That makes no sense. What is he demanding when he demands pistis from the subjects? He's demanding allegiance. He's demanding loyalty. And this is the second dimension of faith, and I think the key one for those of us in our context to learn. Because when Paul writes about faith, or Mark writes about faith, or any of the disciples write about faith, in the context of first century Rome, where Caesar is demanding allegiance to himself, here come the disciples who say, we don't give our allegiance to Caesar. We give our allegiance, our faith, our pistis to Jesus. This is a political statement. It is a political statement in first century imperial Rome. And for many of us today, it continues to be one because the world cries out for our allegiance. And Christianity at its core is about allegiance to King Jesus. Thirdly, it can mean faithfulness. And we see that this in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Faithfulness. And that's just the word pistis. That's what it is. Um, but in that context, it's translated 
faithfulness. And so the three dimensions of faith are a belief, yes, a loyalty, allegiance, and an obedience. And these are not my thoughts. This is N.T. Wright and Scott McKnight and Gupta and brilliant, brilliant scholars that I've been thinking about and reading for a long time. These are the three dimensions of faith. We have believing faith. We have obeying faith. We have loyal faith. You can also think about it this way. God cares about our orthodoxy, our right thinking. He cares about our orthopraxy, our right practice. And he cares about our orthopathy, our right feeling. All of these things. Most of us probably grew up in a context where orthodoxy was the one thing that was most important. That is a flattened understanding of faith. That is a one-dimensional faith. Yes, God cares about your orthodoxy. He cares every bit as much about your orthopraxy <laughs> and your orthopathy. Because when Jesus invites you into a relationship with himself, he's inviting you to believe in him. He's inviting you to be allegiant to him. And he's inviting you to be obedient to him. If you hear my words and don't do them, you're like a man who builds his house on the sand. If you hear my words and you put them into practice, you're like a man who builds his house on the rock. This doesn't mean we earn our faith or earn our salvation. Salvation is always a gift of God. It's how we receive it and how we walk it out, how we live it out. So with that in mind, read this verse again with me. And all are justified freely by his grace. So we're justified freely by his grace. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. We don't earn it through our obedience, but we sure receive it through our obedience. We don't earn it through our allegiance, but we receive it through our allegiance. We don't even earn it by our belief. We receive it through our belief. So here's what we're going to do. And I don't want any arguments, no pushback, all right? <laughs> we're out of time. So for like three minutes, I'm going to set a timer with the people around you. Ask, uh, have a quick discussion about this. What are the three dimensions of faith? How does this understanding of faith differ from how you've traditionally thought of faith? And in which of these three dimensions is the Lord inviting you towards greater depth? Ready, set, go. The first service did so good. Go. All right, wrap up those thoughts. Worship team, come on up. All right, thanks for doing that. I really, really appreciate it. One of the things we just deeply believe um, is that church is not about going and listening to someone lecture at you. That is not what this is about. Um, there are times where it's appropriate to receive the word um, taught by someone who's, who's gone through training. Yes, that's appropriate. But we're here to talk to one another. We're here to fellowship with one another. We're here for the manifold wisdom of God, which can only show up in the body. So thank you for doing that as stretching as it may have been. We, um, we're going to end with singing. Uh, we have two things. We're going to sing, There's a Redeemer, and then we have a guest with us, a pastor from Kenya who's here, and he's going to sing in Swahili over us as a benediction uh, this morning, which is really cool. So let's stand and sing, There's a Redeemer, and I want to hear you sing loud, Parker Ford Church. Let's sing together about the beautiful love of Jesus Christ.